Today is the day that the Lord has made. So let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen? Amen. 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 There is a growing call. I feel like I sense it. I don't know if you, if you feel like I feel like there's a growing call right now, especially among the, the Evangelical Church of America right now, for, for a call for a, maybe, maybe some would say a return, but either way, a call for a form of preaching that's more reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets than what is often characterized as our modern-day motivational speaking type preaching. A form of preaching that may not seem so kind at times because the Old Testament prophets, I tell you, if you read the Old Testament prophets, sometimes they gave us some graphic, gritty imagery in a way that really just kind of like gave us a vivid image to try to help us to understand the severity of our sin. Like, if you read the Old Testament prophets, there are times that these, these prophets would, would look at God's people and they would say things like, your heartless worship, all of your so, so-called righteous deeds, they are menstrual rags before the Lord. And they'd even use a little bit more harsh term in their own original language. So people are like, where's that preaching? Where's that preaching that's going to call sin, sin? Where's that preaching that's going to wake up a sleepy church? Because it's not going to happen by keeping a comfortable people more comfortable. We need the Old Testament prophets to rise up again. And we have some people raising up and, and, and sounding more like that. But here's what I submit to you. Like these guys, these Old Testament guys, they took it to the next level. The Old Testament prophets, they wouldn't just speak God's message. They would act it out. Ezekiel laid on his side for over a year, just laying there to let people know that God's going to lay them to waste. Anybody want to pay my salary and allow me to lay on my side for over a year? Bring me some food? No? Isaiah. Isaiah was called to walk buck naked for three years so that people would understand that God sees who you really are. And then we have Hosea, who we're going to be spending some time with. Hosea was called to marry a woman that God said is going to be unfaithful to you. She is an unfaithful woman, but you are to go and marry her and love her, and she's going to continue to be unfaithful to you because the people need to see that's what they are doing to me. It's a hard, gritty message, but it's one that we need to hear. So if you have your Babas, go ahead and turn to Hosea chapter 1. For some context for you, here's where we're at in, in the, the history of, of God's people. At this moment, we're about... Uh, 250 years after King David, so about the same time between us and George Washington. At this time, God's people had been split into two different kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom, anybody know what it was called? Judah. So we had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Hosea comes on the scene, and he, he primarily speaks to the northern kingdom, although there are times he addresses the south. And you, know, you need to understand what was happening in Israel at this time. See, the northern kingdom of Israel was under King Jeroboam II. And during this time, they were flourishing. They were flourishing as a kingdom. See, what was, see their, their rival, their, their next-door rival, Syria, they were being held at bay and kind of kept underfoot by the growing superpower of 
Assyria. So Assyria was keeping Syria at bay. This allowed the northern kingdom to basically have no rivals. They were allowed to flourish both in military strength and economic power. For the people of the northern kingdom, this was a time of comfort, security, and affluency. But all the while, there was a rot developing in their soul. And this is the scene that Hosea is called to. It's probably roughly about 750 B.C. And this is when Hosea is called by the Lord. So let's, with that context, we can go ahead and just jump to verse 2. We'll read chapter 1, verse 2, through the rest of the chapter. Would you hear the word of the Lord? When the Lord first spoke through through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take for yourself a wife of whoredom. And have children of whoredom. For the land, meaning the people, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley. I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. And I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, And in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. This is God's word. Let's pray and we'll get to it. Father in heaven, even though, O Lord, thousands of years have passed between our time and the time of Hosea, it seems as though something's never changed. So we ask, Father, by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, that the message of Hosea would not leave us unchanged. But by the gospel of this prophet, we'd come to know the great love that you have for us through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray these things. Amen and amen. Okay, so while the northern kingdom of Israel, they were living in comfort, security, affluency, comfort, security, affluency. Say that with me. Comfort, affluency. While this was happening, a great rot was developing in their soul. They were becoming spiritually indifferent. This is a huge lesson for us. People who are comfortable, secure, and affluent, they have a hard time finding a reason to worship God. Because why worship God when we have it all? 
They were becoming indifferent towards God. And because of that, they were becoming no different from the world around them. And God says to them, you have forsaken me. See, I think sometimes we think that to be, like when we forsake God, we think that means that we like, we shake our fist at him and say, I no longer believe in you. And God gives us a different picture of what it means to forsake him. Sometimes that just means that we are ever growing colder and colder towards God. But you have to understand the picture that's being revealed here because it's more like us than what you may even think now. The people of Israel, they were incorporating the cultural practices of the world around them into their worship and into their theology. And I don't mean that they were bringing cool lights and a drum kit into their church services. They were falling into syncretism. That means that they were syncing up. They were linking up with the, with the beliefs and the practices of the world around them. They, they were allowing what was going out there to pollute their faith. So let's go back 3,000 years to the time of Hosea. In, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the land surrounding Israel, two of the primary gods that the pagans worshipped were Asherah and Baal. Now, as you can probably tell, Asherah here is a woman— and as you can probably tell, Baal is a dork. <laughs> the great Baal that you learned about in Sunday school, right? The, the great rival for the hearts of the people against Yahweh. This was him. And this should show us a picture of the stupid things we give our hearts to. I'm sure at their time, they found a cultural way to justify worshiping a clown. But you step outside your context and you can see how crazy it is that the world that you live in, it's crazy that the people would worship that over God. But this was, the, this was the, the religions of the world around them. They worshipped Asherah and they worshipped Baal. And what we find through archaeology that helps show, just further confirm what we see in Scripture, we found this artifact from the time of Hosea, from the 700s B.C. Here's, here's the thing we found, and this is a, a better image of what's drawn on there. What we have here is blasphemy in the highest order. I know you can't read this, but what it says is Yahweh is married to Asherah. Yahweh, the God of Israel, his divine name, his, his personal covenant name that he's revealed to his people. They've taken him and they said that he married the pagan gods. This is, again, this is blasphemy on the highest order. Not only do we have an image of Yahweh, which breaks the second commandment, but they said that he's married a foreign, pagan, demonic God. Because they were allowing what other people believed to shape what they believed. They, they, they were trying to find a way to fit in. They were blending what was happening out there with what was supposed to be happening in their own hearts. The culture around them began to form their faith. Ancient history, right? Couldn't be closer to home. Don't so many self-proclaimed Christians do the same thing? We find ways to justify what they believe out there. We try to bring it in here. And so God looks at the people doing this and he calls Hosea to marry an unfaithful woman. And he does this in order to show the people what they were doing to God. That their indifference 
and they're blending in with the world, that was being unfaithful to him. And so Hosea goes and he marries Gomer. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Let me ask you, uh, think for a moment, what's the most recent family picture that your family has taken? My family, our, our family picture is a little, a little outdated, but if you watch Facebook, people like to post their really cool, cute family photos, you know, where everyone's coordinated and they're standing in front of a cool rustic barn, even though they don't live on a farm. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> so this family picture of Hosea begins to take shape. He marries this unfaithful woman and they have a son and it's not, it's not Facebook worthy. So this family begins to take shape. A son is born because God's trying to show us that this is, what, this is, the, this is the type of relationship that we're meant to have with God, that we're meant to be so close with him that it's like a marriage, that it's like a family That's how close of a relationship that we are to have with God, that he is primary, he's the center of our home, that he is above all else, that he is the focal point of who we are. But God looked at at the people. He looked at their hearts and he saw that they were becoming indifferent. They were assimilating to the world around them. They were letting the world around them into their hearts. And he says, that is forsaking him. He said, that is being unfaithful to him. And you may be like, hold on. I'm I'm not forsaking God. I'm just busy. God says, no, you're not just busy. You are forsaking me. You are being unfaithful to me and you're using busyness as an excuse. God does not let us off the hook. When we let the world dictate how we worship and how much we worship, when we, when we let the culture and what's popular determine our beliefs, when we let our schedule and our busyness get in the way of faithfulness, this is no innocent thing. God looks at us and says, you are being a prostitute. That's prostitution in God's eyes. You know what prostitution is? Prostitution is giving ourselves to that which does not have the capacity to love us back. And we do this all the time. We do it with our jobs. Our jobs do not love us back. We do it with sports. I'm sorry, sports do not love you back. We do it with money. Money does not love you back. We prostitute ourselves because we give ourselves to things that which do not have the capacity to love us back. And God says, when you do that, you are being unfaithful because where there is no devotion to him, there is only unfaithfulness towards him. And this is a call out to everyone. I don't care if you're from the 722 BC or you're from 2022. This is the call that God has for us. The standard is so much higher. So we see this family picture of Hosea and Gomer take shape. And we need to understand when we look at that family picture, we are Gomer. We are Gomer. We are the unfaithful spouse who gives ourselves to everything except the one who loves us the most. We all do it. So Gomer and Hosea, they go on to have three children. And God gives each of these children a prophetic name. First, they have a son. The son's name is Jezreel. This is an infamous place in Israel. If you read the Old Testament, Jezreel's all over the place. Many deaths happened there. Slaughter happened there. As one commentator said, when the, the, the term Jezreel 
to the northern kingdom, they would have heard bloodshed. It was a very packed and weighty term. It's kind of like if I said 9-11 to you. That's more than just a date on our calendar. That represents a lot of horror for us. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. So the king of this time was King Jeroboam II. He was a descendant of King Jehu, and God is saying that this lineage will come to an end, and not only will this lineage come to an end, but the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, will be brought to an end. And God says, on that day I will break the bow, which means the strength of Israel, in the valley of Jezreel. History tells us, and the Bible shows us, that this prophecy was fulfilled in the year 722 BC when the world superpower of Assyria invaded and destroyed the kingdom of Israel. And the path that the Assyrian army took was through the valley of Jezreel. This was sheer horror. Historical records from outside the Bible, from Assyria at that time, tell us that when, when Assyria destroyed Israel, they marched back about 30,000 people from the northern kingdom, men, women, and children. They brought them back to Assyria, and they made them march naked the entire way. This is horror on a scale we just don't even begin to understand. But God is saying, you chose this. You didn't choose me, you chose the world, and this is what the world gives you. It may give you comfort, security, and fluency for a time, but it will kill you. This is how seriously God takes our sin. This is how serious God takes his covenant with us, his promises with us. If we are his people, then we are in covenant with God. A covenant is a relationship built on promise, just like a marriage. This is the picture of Hosea and Gomer that's meant to show us, us and God, that we are to be his people and he is to be our God. But yet even in our great sin, even in the fact that we prostitute ourselves to other things, God still loves us. Just as Hosea is called to still love Gomer. And they go on and they have a daughter. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them all. It's as if God is saying to these people, You just don't get it. You don't stop. You've cheated on me, and now there's nothing left. I have no more mercy for you. You have given yourself to the world, and so the world you shall have. But then God turns to the southern kingdom. And he says, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or by war, by horses or by horsemen. God is saying that he will be the one to save them. You see, in 722, when Assyria comes and absolutely decimates and destroys once and for all the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, they turn their attention to the south. And as they are approaching the south, we, we see recorded in 2 Kings chapter 19, you can read it in your community groups later, but God steps in and miraculously saves Judah. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35. He saves Judah, but not Israel. They are destroyed what happened was that they wanted the world around them, and so God let them have the world around them. 
I'm here to tell you right now, this is one of the most terrifying things that God does. He allows us to have the fruit of our choices. This is one of the scariest things that God allows. He allows us to eat the bitter fruit of our own choices. And this is terrifying when we think about our kids growing up in a world that's just vying for their attention. And so they will chase after whatever's popular or accepted and they will go after the world. And we see our kids do that and we are terrified because we know that God will let them have the fruit of their choices. And so we pray. We pray that the Spirit would intervene and call them to a repentant faith in Jesus. When we choose the world over the Word, when we choose sin over the Spirit, God lets us have the fruit of our choices. And this is terrifying when we think about our own children, which leads to Hosea's third child. And when she had weaned no mercy, that means in their context probably about three years, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. This is the nail in the coffin. God says, you're not my people. Actually, in, 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 the, in, the, in the original Hebrew, what it actually says is, you're not my people and I am not Yahweh. This, this covenantal name that I've, I've given to you, I'm not that to you anymore. I am not your God. In a covenantal sense, God is saying, it's over. I want a divorce. You've cheated on me for far too long. I've been mercy. I can't have it anymore. It's over. And we need to let that sink in for a moment. God is saying, I don't want this anymore. If this is who you're going to be, I don't want to do this anymore. God says, you have broken your promise to me. You have let the world into your heart. And it's corrupted you. And you've given yourself to it and you keep doing it. You've given your heart to the world and so like the world you have become. God says, you have broken your promise to me. But in the very same breath, God says, but I have not broken my promise to you. And in the midst of this terrifying prophecy, God gives us two verses of hope. God says, yet, such a beautiful word, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. The truth is, is that God will still let them have the destruction that their choices deserve. And while that kingdom does come to an end, the promise that God's given to them endures. You see, over a thousand years prior, God had told Father Abraham, the father of the nations, he gave them a covenantal promise that his descendants would be as blessed and be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And God is saying that promise continues. But your promise have proven to be unfaithful. But I will still be faithful to my promise. God is saying to them, there is still a future. God says to them, yes, you should despair over the choices you've made, but there is still hope for eternity. Listen to me. I know some people in here, you look at your life and you have made horrendous choices. You've made terrible choices that have ruined lives, that have hurt people. You walk around and your soul feels very scarred by the choices that you've made because God's let you have the fruit of your choices. But I want you to know there is still hope for eternity. 
God's promises endure nonetheless. That covenant with Abraham endures, and the promise continues. And God continues, and he goes on to say, And they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. God is saying to the people, Your two broken kingdoms will be reunited one day. You will come together and have one head. You'll have one king. And he says, Jezreel, this place that was the fulfillment of your curse, it will be the very place of your eternal blessing. So go back to that family picture. Hosea is standing there. It's not a very cute picture. It's a broken family with a promiscuous wife and children with prophetic names of judgment. And as we look at this family picture, we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean for us? It means that we, who are on this side of the cross, we still need to look at our lives and we need to repent where we need to repent. So let's look at two things as we close up this first message. First thing, it's better to be confronted with our comfortable sin before we are condemned for it. And second, true faith in the true God is the only place of true innocence. So first, it's better to be confronted with our comfortable sin before we are condemned for it. See, God calls these prophets to deliver a message. It's a hard message. I think a lot of people today, they want to deliver a hard message so that they can amass a great social media following. But this is absolutely unpopular. You think a people who love their sin are going to love this message? God calls them out. And do you think of people who love popularity? And do you think of people who are drunk on their own culture? Do you think they're going to like what the prophets have to say? And here, church, you know what? That goes for us. The American church has developed a culture that needs to get called out too. These people were assimilating to the beliefs and allowing the world to infiltrate their heart and infect their soul and pollute their faith. And they didn't even know it. So where, where are you allowing the ways of the world to determine what you believe? Where are you allowing the ways of the world to try to twist Scripture or how you worship or how often you worship? Because here's the parallel between this ancient kingdom and our own country. The kingdom of Israel was comfortable and affluent and they let the religions around them influence their faith and worship. We do the exact same thing today. The church in America is comfortable and affluent and we are letting the culture around us influence our faith and worship. When you look at your checking account, your calendar, or your daily routine, when you hold up where your security is and when you hold up where your fears are, is there any difference between you and the world? If there's not, then God says you are being unfaithful. You're being unfaithful to him. And we have become Gomer, who is constantly prostituting ourselves to the ways of the world. And I know the cardinal sin these days is to be offended. But if you are offended by that, good. It means that the message is getting to you. And it's better to be confronted with our comfortable sin before we are condemned for it. And I know plenty of people are going to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Take it down a notch, pastor. Like, I'm not forsaking the God. I mean, I'm just, 
pull out a book from Biden. Come on, man. I'm just busy. <laughs> we'll say, I'm just busy. God knows my heart. And you know what? God does know your heart. Apparently better than you do. Because God looks at our hearts and he says, if you think that's an excuse, you are fooling yourselves. You are absolutely fooling yourselves. If you want to know where your heart is, if you want to know what your heart is, don't look for secret hidden things. Look at your life. Look at the choices you make. Look how you spend your time and money. That's where your heart is. That is who you really are. And God sees it. Don't take these like veiled attempts to try and justify yourself with, with good intentions. You want to know where your heart is? Look at what you decide to do on a daily basis with your time, with your talent, and with your money. You are not innocent. Meaning well is not good enough. God looks at our hearts, and that means he looks at our lives, our desires, our choices. We're not innocent. We're Gomer. And we need to understand this last truth, especially in our attempt to justify ourselves as innocent people, that true faith in the true God is the only place of true innocence. If we seek to be innocent and pure before the Lord, it's not going to happen through a watered-down, culturally-shaped, lazy faith that's more focused on the things of this world. That faith will condemn you. The problem is, is that we have so lowered our standard of what it means to be good that everybody passes the test as long as you're not murdering somebody. And God says that is not the standard. If you've lowered the standard to that point, you are being unfaithful. And God says what you're really doing is you're forsaking me. But we're too busy to see it because we're too busy trying to justify ourselves by pointing to all the good things that we do or the good things that we want to do. Because, you know, we mean well. True innocence only happens through faith in God. And while Hosea lived out the message so that people could see their oncoming judgment, Jesus Christ lives the life that we should have lived so that he could take our judgment. This is the profound reality and beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ, that the punishment that should have been ours, Jesus took in our place. When in our hearts we've forsaken God and we should be the ones on the cross, Jesus goes there for us. Jesus is the faithful spouse when we are the unfaithful one. But we long for innocence. And we want to be innocent, but we're not. We're not innocent because we love people. We're not innocent because we mean well. We're not innocent because we fight for the right cause. We're not innocent because we think we're on the right side of history. We're not innocent because we think we're good people on the inside. We are innocent because we are made innocent by the blood of Jesus Christ who washes away our sins. Justifying ourselves only heaps more sin upon us. But Jesus, by his blood, we are wiped clean. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't say, you tried hard. By the blood of Jesus, when God looks at us, he sees innocence. He sees righteousness. And then we have the innocence that the world longs for. And when we have faith in Jesus and his blood has washed away our sins, we no longer fear judgment, but we just anticipate a fount of blessing. True faith 
in Jesus Christ is the only place of true innocence. Does the world need the prophets of old to rise up again and call sin, sin, and remind us of what is evil? Yeah. But the world needs Jesus more. Amen.